So tonight we're going to start session number 10. We'll open up chapter 11, and I'll pray. Father, tonight again I ask you to open our minds to understand the Scriptures, for it is what you and you alone can do. We're going to open up chapter 11, and we're going to seek to know you, the one true God in Jesus whom you have sent. We seek tonight your wisdom for the church, for we acknowledge tonight that Satan wants to come against the church, and he wants to deceive us to yield the truth in exchange for a lie. So tonight, uh, I pray that the writings of the Apostle Paul through the Holy Spirit will be writings to us personally, in Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 11 opens up with a warning. In fact, if you look at chapter 11, it's a warning. It's a warning to the church. What About what? The deception of Satan. He's good at it. He's a deceiver. In fact, if he doesn't deceive you, he won't get you. He can't get you by putting up front the deal. You'll never agree to the deal as it really is. He'll have to trick you into the deal. So this particular deception is coming against the church. Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Here comes the beginning of the warning. Verse 1. I hope you will put up with a little more of my foolishness. Please bear with me. For I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride. What? I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. Paul is jealous for the church at Corinth. Do you understand what that means? In fact, when they opened the letter and they read this, and Paul said what? I promised you as a pure bride to one husband. I wonder how many people in the ancient church at Corinth understood. Oh, yeah, I know what that means. Or do you think maybe they read that and thought, what does he mean? I, Paul, promised you church people as a pure bride to one husband, Jesus Christ. Do you know what he means? Can you assume what he's trying to communicate? Well, to understand that, we need to understand this. Paul begins by saying that I am jealous for you. In other words, I have a connection to you that I don't want to yield to another. I have a connection to you that I'm not willing to take somebody else and put between us. And I have this connection to you, and my connection is not that I will have you, but that I will present you to your husband. I want you to visualize this. Paul is like the best man at the wedding. And he has promised the bride, he's promised the, the groom to deliver the bride in her purity for the wedding. He says, I'm jealous for you. In other words, I'm jealous. I have a responsibility to make sure that I deliver you to your husband, and I'm, I'm jealous if anybody else tries to get involved in the relationship while you're waiting for the ceremony. So when somebody told you that God is a jealous God, what would you think? When Paul says, I'm jealous for the church, 
What do you think? When you hear the word jealous, does it, does it bring into your mind a positive or a negative? You see, it's my experience that most people in our culture hear the word jealous and it's a negative. Because you think of jealousy as being something that's wrong or something that's destructive. Maybe over the line, overboard. God is jealous. So don't, don't worry about some man standard. God is a jealous God. How does that make you feel about God? I think I've used this illustration before. It's been years and years and years and years ago. Uh, Oprah Winfrey had a show one time where she described to her audience that she saw, she read the scripture where God was a jealous God and she could no longer look at God the same way. It made God look really small to her. I'm not getting into that. It made God look small to her that he's a jealous God, like God's got some emotional issues that he really needs to deal with. And if he came to the Oprah show, she could fix that right up. So let's go to the Ten Commandments. Let's go and look at God's standard for mankind. And did I mention he was God? So we might ought to focus on that for a moment. He's God. And here's what he says. Exodus chapter 20. You must not make for yourself an idol of any kind or any image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. Now, now pause. You know what he's saying? Can I translate it to modern language? No substitutes. I'm not going to allow you to have any substitutes for me. Idolatry, listen, what, what, what's this commandment? This commandment is against idolatry. Idolatry is a substitute for the original. And idolatry, listen carefully because here's where we're going tonight. Idolatry, from God's perspective, is adultery. Idolatry is spiritual adultery. Let there be no mistake tonight. I'm going to show you in the scripture that from God's perspective, idolatry is spiritual adultery. Now, now, can you start to understand what Paul wrote to the church of Corinth? I'm jealous for you. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband. And that husband's jealous. And I'm jealous for you. And he's not going to share you with somebody else. And don't you let the wedding come up and find you cheating in love with somebody else when you were betrothed engaged to him God's jealous he's jealous verse 5 back in Exodus you must not bow down to them what idols or worship them why for I the Lord your God am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for other gods he's jealous why because he claims that person to be his. And he doesn't want to share you with someone who's less than himself. A false God. And then he says this, I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected. Even children in the third and fourth generation of those who reject me. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commands. Notice in the jealousy is the love. 
In the love there is the jealousy. I promise a blessing of love to those who are faithful in the relationship of love. Paul was called by Christ to make, listen, Paul was called by Christ. I'm convinced that when Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, when he was taken to the third heaven, when he encountered things unspeakable that he can't even communicate, God clearly defined that he was called to make the church ready for the wedding. You hear me? To make the church, the bride of Christ, ready to meet the groom. I'm convinced that's his calling. Now, that is particularly of interest to me personally. You've heard me give my testimony over the years, and I told you time and time and time again when I had these encounters with God and God placed his calling upon my life, the first was what? I'm calling you to be a watchman. Number two, the deliverer's coming. Number three, make the church ready for the wedding. She thinks she's ready, she is not. Now that's why I'm in the ministry, those three things. So when I read chapter 11 and I see Paul's words, I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride for the one husband. I understand, I see this calling, I get this calling, that Paul felt like he had a responsibility to prepare the bride for the upcoming event the wedding, understanding that right now the bride is engaged to the husband, but the wedding has not yet taken place, but it's coming. Paul is like the best man in this wedding, and he wants the bride to be ready and faithful as they wait for the bridegroom. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the bridegroom, when he picks the best man, to watch over the bride before the, the bride to be before the wedding. Do you think he's going to pick somebody he can trust? Somebody reliable? Somebody that'll watch over and take responsibility for the bride to ensure she shows up at the wedding, a pure bride for one husband. Paul says that's who he is. He feels that burden of responsibility. You know who else had that? John the Baptist. John the Baptist has, says he had that same calling. John the Baptist says he had that same event. He had the same role when it comes to preparing the bride, the church, for the bridegroom. Let me read it to you. Let's go over to the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 27. This is not the Apostle John. This is the John the Baptist, okay? John the Baptist replied, No one can receive anything unless the Lord gives it from heaven. You yourselves know how plainly I told you, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare the way for him. Now pause. pause uh, John the Baptist says, I am not the Messiah. I am only here to prepare a way for him. What do you think it means? How would you prepare a way for the arrival of the Messiah on the earth? Now this is the first coming of the Messiah, right? He comes as a baby, he grows up. John the Baptist has a six-month head start on him. He's six months older. He feels, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make way, the, the path for the Lord. He's preparing a way. Well, what do you mean preparing a way? He's preparing for the bride to meet the bridegroom. The bridegroom is going to be introduced to the bride, the people. 
John the Baptist. Now, do you think I'm stretching that? Well, then you haven't read the next verse. It is the bridegroom who marries the bride. And the best man is simply glad to stand with him and hear his vows. Therefore, I am filled with joy at his success. What's John the Baptist? He's the best man. What's Paul playing himself off to be? The best man. I'm standing because I've been called. Paul and John say the same thing. They've been called by the bridegroom, Jesus Christ, to stand with the bride and make her ready, to make the path to the wedding ready, to present the bride a pure bride for the wedding event. So what could possibly break up the engagement between the bride and the bridegroom? Here we go. All that is to get to this. What could possibly mess up this wedding? Huh? John the Baptist has come, supernatural. The Apostle Paul is here, supernatural. Holy Spirit filled, met Jesus, resurrected, saw heaven. What? What could possibly mess up the wedding? Satan's deception. What would it look like? Come on, what would it look like to God? What would it look like to God? What would Satan deceive the church? What would Satan's deception in the church look like to God in the scene of a wedding of a bride and a bridegroom and a best man? Adultery. Spiritual adultery. Spiritual adultery. Have you ever thought, and, and I don't have time to get into it in detail tonight, have you ever noticed how much of the gospel presentation is a picture of a wedding? If you understand anything about the Jewish culture, and I'm going to give you the short version, when Jesus comes and says, I'm, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again so that where you are, uh, that's where I'll be and will be forever. So, so in a Jewish culture, the, the, the groom would go to the, the bride-to-be's house and ask permission to marry her. But the engagement would begin. They had long engagements. After he got permission to marry the bride, he would go back to his house and add on to his father's house because that's how the culture lived. So the bridegroom, the groom, would go to his girlfriend's house. He would propose to her. She would accept this invitation to be his bride. He then would go back to his father's house and make a room. And after a time of engagement, he would then come back and get her. Now, one more time. Jesus said, do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, that where I am, there you may be also. He's the groom who is proposed to the bride, and he's going to leave to make a place in the house, and then he's going to come back during the engagement period, then he's going to come back for the time of the wedding, get the bride, and take her to the Father's house. Now, do you see, this is a scene of a wedding. 
the Apostle Paul, John the Baptist, they're the best men at the wedding. The bride is the church. The groom is Jesus. Now, right now, where are we in this picture? The bride has been promised as a pure bride to the husband. The bride is the church. And we're in the engagement period, and he's gone to the father's house to make a place for the bride to come and live with him forever. How could we mess this up? <laughs> How could we mess this up? During the engagement, you become an adulterer. What, 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 what? During the engagement, you become a cheater. During the engagement, you have promised yourself as a pure bride, but he's been gone a long time now. I'm not sure he's coming back. And you become a cheater. You could have had a love relationship with him, but you substituted another. Spiritual adultery is idolatry. It's the same. You with me? Let's keep going. Verse 3. Paul says, I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion, you engaged bride, I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion to Christ will be corrupted. Just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. How did he get her? You see, how he got her is how he gets the church. How? You see, Satan took the place of God in the garden. So something's got to take the place of God during the engagement for there to be spiritual adultery. Paul says, I fear that somehow your pure and undivided devotion will be corrupted. Just as Eve was deceived by the cunning ways of the serpent. You happily put up with whatever what anyone tells you, even if they preach a different Jesus than the one we preach, and a different kind of the Holy Spirit than the one we preach, the one we you receive, or a different kind of the gospel than the one you believe. Did you see the three? There's a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. How is Satan going to do it? How can he deceive and do to the church what he did to Eve? How? He gives you a different Jesus and a different gospel and a different spirit. And you're going to look around one day and find out that they're imposters. They're not the real one. It's not the one who promised you a wedding. But yet you gave yourself to the wrong one. Spiritual adultery. Idolatry to God is adultery. And idolatry, listen up. I read the whole book several times. Idolatry is fatal. It's fatal. You die. The punishment for idolatry, you all ready? The punishment for this spiritual idolatry. You have become, you have taken a substitute when you could have had the bridegroom who's gone to prepare a place for you 
in the Father's house. The, the punishment for abandoning, for, for abandoning the, engage, the, the bridegroom during the engagement, the punishment is he'll let you go with the one you chose. That's it. He'll let you go with the one you chose. But you're going to get what he gets. Now, if you go with Jesus, you're going to go to the Father's house, and you're going to get what Jesus gets. But if you go with Satan, you're going to go to where he's going, and you're going to get what he gets. The punishment is, if you want another, I'll let you have them. Just understand, you're going to get what they get. It is a lake of burning sulfur. Idolatry is the issue of the second of the Ten Commandments. He is a jealous God. He will not share his bride. Listen, if, if you want to find anything inside the New Testament, here it is. He is not going to share his bride. He's not doing it. He will not share. He will not give or share his glory with another. He's not going to do it. Eve heard the word of God, and Eve heard the word of Satan. Eve chose another voice to follow. She heard both of them. Both were clearly communicated and both were clearly understood. And she chose the substitute word. Did you hear me? I said it on purpose. She chose the substitute word. The word. She chose a substitute. This is where the Bible is so important. We have a single source of truth. And we must not move from that single source of truth. Because this single source of truth is, and you're going to have to decide, I can't decide for you, the Word of God. Is the Bible the Word of God? Let's, let's, let's go fundamental right here. Is the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, nah, 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 is all of that the singular Word of God. Now, if you receive that and believe that, you're listening to God. Because it's God's Word. But what would it be if you rejected that? Who are you listening to? There's another voice. There's another one. Many today are preaching a different Jesus than the one that Paul preached in the Bible. Many today are revealing a different spirit and a different gospel than the one Paul talked about in the Bible. How can we guard ourselves against the cunning deception of Satan? Paul's warning the church, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he's warning the church about this cunning deception of Satan. How do we guard ourselves? How, how do I keep myself from being deceived? I got to know the Word of God. I got to know, personally, I need to know the Word of God. How did Jesus deal with Satan every time in the wilderness? How? He quoted Scripture. Can you quote Scripture? Because every time he quoted Scripture, Satan, what did Satan do? He had to move on. He moved on to another one. Well, that didn't work. I'll try another one. Every time. Do you think that's just coincidence? 
Every time Satan came to Jesus in the wilderness to test him, he, he, Jesus quoted the Scripture. Well, you'd have to have that in your heart to be able to use it. 2 Corinthians 11, verse, six, verse 5. But I don't consider myself inferior to any of the, in any way to these super apostles who teach such things. I may be unskilled as a speaker, but I'm not lacking in knowledge. We have made this clear to you in every possible way. He, I don't know what kind of speaker he was. I never heard him speak. I've read his writings, and he is quite impressive in his writings. But he says, maybe I wasn't such a skilled speaker, but I am not lacking in knowledge. Now, I'm going to tell you, before I move on, I've said it twice already. Listen, this is the guy who is traveling to Damascus, Syria. By the way, that city's still there today. He's on the road from Jerusalem to Damascus. You can travel that road today. It's a real place. And the resurrected Jesus knocks him to the ground and blinds his eyes and fills his being with his presence. Change, you're talking about changing your whole life. And if that were not enough, folks, that'd be enough. That'd work for me. If that were not enough, it says that later he was lifted to the third heaven and he saw things that God would not allow him to speak of. He says, I may not be such a skilled speaker, but I am not lacking in knowledge. He saw heaven. And what, what did this guy who saw heaven say? I have promised you, church, as a pure bride to one husband. You think he doesn't understand his calling? You think he doesn't understand why he's on earth? He's the best man who's watching over the bride during the engagement period to make sure she makes it to the wedding. He gets it. And he writes this stuff down so that future generations will understand that we each need to take our role in this calling of God. Some of us will be the best men over the bride as she waits for the wedding. And they will bear their responsibility of that calling. What calling? I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. Because I promise, I promise, I promise Jesus that I would present you. That's what Paul's saying. I promise Jesus I'd present all of you to him as a pure, undefiled, unadulterous bride ready for the wedding. Paul was called by Christ himself to teach the way of God to Gentiles, not Jews. His message was clear. Paul suffered much opposition from Satan in delivering this word of God to the Gentiles. Do you think Satan just stood back and let Paul preach away? Let me read to you some of this. Verse 7. Well, let me, this will kind of set up the rest of it. Was I wrong when I humbled myself and honored you? by preaching God's good news to you without expecting anything in return. I robbed other churches by accepting their contributions so I could serve you at no cost. And when I was with you and didn't have enough to live on, I did not become a financial burden to anyone. 
For the brothers who came from Macedonia brought me all I needed. I have never been a burden to you, and I never will be. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, no one in all Greece will ever stop me from boasting about this. Why? Because I don't love you? No, 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 no. No, God knows I love you. Let let me interpret that. God says, Paul says, I'm one of the few people you'll meet who will love you enough to tell you the truth. I'm one of the few people that love you enough to tell you the truth. Think of Paul as the best man in the wedding ceremony between the church at Corinth and Jesus the bridegroom. He loves the bride enough to protect her with truth. How would you protect the bride? Truth. While she waits for the bridegroom, the wedding. You would always pick someone trustworthy. Someone who will, if you're going to pick a best man, you're not going to pick a scoundrel are you if your best man's going to have responsibility to watch after the bride during the engagement period you're not going to pick a scoundrel you're going to pick someone trustworthy paul feels a great responsibility to prepare the bride and to warn the bride about what adultery idolatry unfaithfulness jesus the bridegroom Let me pause in the story and tell you something. I won't do a wedding without doing pre-marriage counseling. Just something I decided I was going to do a long time ago. In my pre-marriage counseling, I go through several things. One of the things ends up here. In the Gospels, there's a group of Jewish people that come to Jesus and said, Moses says we could put away our wife with a letter of divorce. What do you say? Because ultimately this always comes up. What do you say, Jesus? And Jesus' answer is something like this. Except for adultery. Except for adultery. No. 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 This is not complicated. Except for adultery. No. And then Jesus quotes Genesis chapter 3. For this cause a man shall leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one, and they will become one flesh. And therefore what God has joined together, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Now, when I tell that story to this pre-marriage counseling couple, I always do this. Here, here's the message tonight. There would be a question in there that would have to be asked. Jesus, why just adultery if i was there that day i'd call him off the side and say why just adultery because see i think i know the answer why only adultery all right here's the answer see i believe that jesus has invited me into a wedding and i believe literally that he has called me to attend the wedding supper of the Lamb as being part of the bride of Christ. And he's gone to the Father's house to prepare a place for me. And if during the, and I'm engaged, I'm in the engagement time of this love affair. And during the engagement time, if I become a cheater, if I forsake my pledge to the bridegroom, 
and I get distracted and I see other lovers and I begin to have a love relationship with the other lovers, what do you think he's going to do to me? He's going to cut me off. Now, who broke the wedding vows, the engagement vows, the wedding is coming? Who, who broke them? He didn't break them. I broke them. Who's the cheater? I'm the cheater. Listen, listen, church. The reason Jesus looked at those people that day, he says, your hearts are hard. You're hard-hearted people. But except for adultery, here's what it is. You see, God's not going to ask me to put up with my wife if she's in adultery. Because God's not going to put up with Terry Cooper if he's in adultery to him. Did you hear me? You see, to God it's the same thing. What is adultery? It's unfaithfulness. It is to be unfaithful. And if you're unfaithful to God, do you think He's not going to cut you off? He will cut you off. He will cut you off. He will break the engagement because actually you broke the engagement with your unfaithfulness. So if if he looks at these people and says, I won't ask you to stay with an adulterous wife or an adulterous husband because God says, because I'm not going to stay with any of you that commit spiritual adultery. I'll cut you off. He's holding the same standard for us that he asks us to hold for each other. Do you think it's a coincidence that the first and the second of the Ten Commandments deal specifically with idolatry? You think it's an accident that it's number one and it's number two? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto yourself a graven image. You don't bow down to anything. Don't you put another substitute because I have betrothed you. I have offered you an invitation to the wedding supper of the Lamb. I have gone to prepare a place for you. And if you think while the wedding is being prepared, if you can go cheat with the world, I will divorce you. I will cut you off. You see, there's some people that preach another gospel, another Jesus, and another spirit. You know what it is? He won't cut you off. Go on and cheat. Go on and cheat. Y'all go on and cheat. Love the world. Love everything in the world. Let the Bible go. It's all right. It's a different Jesus. It's a different gospel, and it's a different spirit. And you're going to be real surprised when wedding day comes. Because he'll let you go with your lover. And you probably won't like it then. Jesus, the bridegroom, describes it like this. What I'm about to read to you is, from his perspective, the engagement period. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he says, if any of you wants to be my follower, what, what do you think that means? In tonight's analogy, what would that mean? Any of y'all want to get engaged? Anybody want to get married? If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up a cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for, the sake, for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you'll save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but you lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? 
If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in this adulterous and sinful days. Did you hear it? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous and sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. To be ashamed of the message, listen, 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 to be ashamed of the message, to be ashamed of the Bible, let's make it clear, to be ashamed of the Bible from God's perspective is adultery. Let me read it again. Grab whatever translation you want. It says the same thing. If any of you, if anyone is ashamed of me, there's the name of Jesus. And my message, there's the Bible. In this adulterous generation, adulterous days, from his perspective, to be ashamed of the one you're planning to marry and to be ashamed of the message of the one you're planning to marry, you're an adulterer and he will cut you off. You're going to get a divorce before you ever got married. It's in here. James puts it like this. You're still not convinced? James puts it like this, you adulterers. Now, is anybody reading this and thinking this is sex? No, it's not. What is it? It's idolatry. You adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. What do you think the Scripture means when they say that the Spirit of God, that Spirit that God has placed within us is filled with what? With what? Envy. What do you think that means? I will not share you with somebody else. I will. God is looking at us right now in this room and say, I will not share you with this world. Why? Because the God of this world is Satan. And if you have an adulterous relationship with Satan while you're engaged to Jesus, you'll get divorce papers. You think he's bluffing? But he gives us even more grace to stand against such evil schemes, evil desires, excuse me. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but he favors the humble. So, so how, do I, how do I fight against this deception? So humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil. Right? When he asks you to go on a date, say No! I'm taken. I don't date you. I'm engaged. I don't date the devil. I'm not going to date the devil's ways. What in the world? When he tempts you to take your Bible and close it and fill your mind with the world, say, no. I'm engaged. I'm waiting for the wedding supper of the Lamb. The bridegroom's coming. Humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he'll do what? The devil will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands. You think he's, how do you get God close to you? Wash your hands. You sinners, purify your hearts. 
for your loyalty is divided. What, 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 what? Your loyalty, your love, your heart, your desire, your passions are divided between two people, between God the Father and Satan, the God of this world. You've got a divided heart. Verse 9. Listen to these words. Let there be tears for what you have done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Let, let me tell you what I've noticed. Adulterers don't cry until they repent. They don't cry until they repent. Because you know what? They're not sorry until they repent. Now let me read it again. Verse 9. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He'll lift you in honor. There will be opposition. Satan is powerful and cunning and Satan will raise up false apostles. He will raise up false apostles with false words. Verse 12. <clears throat> but I will continue doing what I've always done. This will undercut those who are looking for an opportunity to boast that their work is just like ours. These people are false apostles. They are deceitful workers and they disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. But I'm not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserves. I want to focus on verse 15. Look at that again. The servants of Satan disguise themselves as what? This is the deception. They disguise themselves as what? Servants of righteousness. You know what the word righteousness means? Doing what's right. The servants of Satan will not let you see their real face. They're disguised behind a false face. And the false face is this. Come on, we're only going to show you what is right. But you already know what's right. God's word has already spoken and clarified what's right. You don't need another word. Just go by the word of God. But they present it as servants of righteousness. Come on, I'll show you a better way. Come on, I'll show you a, a right way. Satan must wear a disguise. He dresses himself in light, but he's actually darkness. He dresses himself in truth, but it's actually a lie. I was having a conversation with somebody here earlier today. Let me give you an example of that. He dresses himself in truth, but it's actually a lie. He wears a disguise because he can never let you see what's really behind the mask. Let me give you two examples. In 1972, there was a better way, a new, a new righteousness. In 1972, there was a move in the United States to let's make abortion legal. You know what? This will be a new way. It'll free women from the bondage of these males that have 
that have kept them down for all these years and they let them ex- everybody will be free and will raise society to a new level and, and you know behind the veil behind the curtain you think anybody in 1972 thought there'd be 57 million baby corpses that's what's behind that curtain no, nobody thought there'd be 57 million babies behind that curtain but there's 57 million babies behind that curtain. He put a mask on. Servants of righteousness. Come on. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna find a new way of enlightening society. We're going to raise up society where people will have the freedom to do with their bodies what they want to do with their bodies. No, what it is, you, you'll have the freedom to become your own God and see what happens. 57 million babies. But there's a second example. This one's more modern for us in the room today. You remember back when everyone was celebrating this new law of the Supreme Court called same-sex marriage and they put the colors of the rainbow on the White House and everybody claps their hands and cheers. We're going to reach a new level of enlightenment where love wins. Love wins. Right? Everybody love wins. But you know what you don't know? is what's behind that curtain. Did you know that just a few years after that curtain's drawn back, there won't be any males and there won't be any females? Yesterday, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the Anglican Church in England, the head of the church in England, announced to all the people in the Church of England that you should not try to make your children identify as males or females any longer you should allow them to grow up gender neutral until they decide what they want to be a new enlightenment what's behind the curtain six thousand years of human civilization turned over for a new enlightenment uh, by, by whom by whom by servants of righteousness that have abandoned the word of god and followed a new word. What's behind the curtain? Destruction. It's always destruction. You see, he promises life, but he actually brings death. Something interesting to me, and I, it's just interesting to me, that both of those major worldwide social issues, abortion and same-sex marriage, neither one of them reproduce life. Did you notice? Neither one of them reproduce life. They only produce death. Servants of righteousness. But it's not true. You won't die. Right? Eve stands in the garden. She heard the Word of God. The Word of God's quite clear. She knew. But there's another word. Genesis 3, verse 4. You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. What? 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 She's convinced. The other word is better He's got a mask on. Because you know what? She did die. 
She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and she ate it and then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. You know what? Those who have been blinded by Satan, you know how they look at us in this room tonight? Fools. Let me be more specific. The world looks at Bible-believing Christians as fools. The world look if, if, if you take this event tonight and put it on YouTube, and it will be put on YouTube, I don't care. I'll put it on anywhere. You know what? People, intellectuals, academics will look at this and say, another fool. A fool. By, why? Because he believes the Bible is God speaking to man. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I'm going to ask you a question tonight. Are you willing to bet your eternal soul against that? I'm not. Paul describes himself as a fool for Christ's sake. I guess he's a good one to join. Verse 16. Again, I say, don't think that I am a fool to talk like this. But even if you do, listen to me as you would a foolish person while I also boast a little. Such boasting is not from the Lord, but I'm acting like a fool. And since others boast about their human achievements, I will too. After all, you think you are so wise, but you enjoy putting up with fools. You put up with it when someone enslaves you, takes everything you have, takes advantage of you, takes control of everything, and slaps you in the face. I'm ashamed to say that we've been too weak to do that. But whatever they dare to boast about, I'm talking like a fool again. I dare to boast about it too. Paul's doing what? Can anybody follow him here? He's boast in the foolishness of Christ. He acknowledges that what he is preaching, what he is teaching, the world will look at and say, you're a fool. But you know what the world can't say? They don't know what he knows. They didn't see what he saw. And before, and by the way, and before this man would recant what he did see, he would rather die. Which proves to me what he saw was real. You see, he understood that what he saw is not foolish at all. It only looks like that to those people who are perishing. Is it foolish to give away everything to serve Jesus? Is it foolish to suffer to follow Jesus? Is it, is it foolish to lose your friends, lose your potential ability in the world to fit in with the world to follow Jesus? Is that foolish? Let's keep going. Verse 22. Are they Hebrews? Now he's talking about the Jews who are persecuting him. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. And by the way, that's not a reference to marijuana. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift at sea. I have traveled on many long journeys. I have faced dangers from rivers and from robbers. 
I have faced dangers from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, and on the sea. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty and often have often gone without food. I have shriveled, shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Now, I'm going to ask you, if these verses were a recruiting video for Christianity, how many people do you think we'd get? Come on, come on, join us, because look what you get. i tell you what you get. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again that where I am there, you will be also. That's what you get. But you've got to decide who's telling the truth. Verse 28. Then beside all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Listen carefully. I'm not going to jump over that sentence. Besides all this, what's he got? As if he doesn't have enough already. He said, beside all this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. Why? Because he feels like he's the best man who's supposed to get her to the wedding on time. Who is weak without my feeling that weakness? Who is led astray and I do not burn with anger? If I must boast, I would rather boast about the things that show how weak I am. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus, who is worthy of eternal praise, knows I'm not lying. When I was in Damascus, the governor under King Aretas kept guard at the city gates to catch me. I had to be lowered in a basket through the window in the city wall to escape from him. I close tonight with a very personal application to verse 28. I can very much identify with verse 28. I do. I guess every pastor of every church would very much personally identify with 28. I too feel the daily burden and concern for the church. For the church in America, for this church specifically. I feel that burden. Why? I feel like that my primary role is to warn people what's coming. Jesus is coming. And I feel like that I have a calling specifically to Christ to make the church ready for the wedding, knowing, knowing in advance that many think they're ready and they are not. I see many who are turning away from the truth of God's Word and accepting a different Jesus than the one preached by the Apostle Paul and the other saints of Holy Scripture. I'm watching it. I'm watching it with my own eyes. I am seeing it. Church in Lawrenceburg did a gay wedding recently. Who will survive? Who will survive? In fact, in all reality, there are probably people sitting in this audience tonight that are struggling with this simple truth. Is the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, the very Word of God? Jesus said, to be ashamed of me 
his name. Saying the name out loud. Would, is there any place you won't say his name? If anyone's ashamed of me and my words, my message, in this adulterous generation, I will cut off. I will be ashamed of you when we finally meet in the kingdom of heaven. I didn't say that. He said that. And I'm watching. I am watching with my eyes the church abandon the only thing that makes the church the church. The name of Jesus. The word of God. The Holy Spirit. I want to promise you in this room tonight as a pure bride to the coming bridegroom. Faithful to him alone. I'll close with verse 2. For I am jealous for you with the jealousy of God himself. I promised you as a pure bride to one husband, Christ. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that enables us to know your word. And I pray, Father, for the power of the Holy Spirit to be manifest in your church so we will endure to the end. Suffering shame or reproach or ridicule doesn't matter, but you will find us faithful, not unfaithful. You will find us preparing for the wedding. You will find us dressed in white by your righteousness covering us on the day that you come to take us to your house. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.